Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Health Tech Podcast. My name is James, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week is one of my good friends, Yesh, who is from one of our portfolio companies called Scalpel. So this week we are talking about art, dentistry, entrepreneurship, but mainly we're talking about the use of VR, AR and data analytics to automate protocols in surgery, which is what Yesh is doing with his latest company, Scalpel. So Yesh has got a really cool background. So always loved art, always loved science, became a dentist, but then used his love of art to become what's known as a medical illustrator and actually that organically took him towards technology because he started illustrating digitally and then obviously getting into virtual reality and augmented reality using those visualizations he also has a passion for education so he used those visualizations to educate himself and other clinicians too he founded a social enterprise called Open Simulation. Actually started off as a startup, but realized it's making an impact, but probably not a business. So flipped that into a social enterprise and he talks about all of that on the podcast. And then he went on to found Scalpel. So he's building what is a non-invasive sensing platform for hospitals, specifically operating rooms to improve patient safety, prevent serious incidents and reduce costs. So what it does, it detects and prevents errors in real time using a kind of a combination of deep learning and sensor fusion techniques, computer vision, etc. But Yesh explains that in far better and greater detail than me, so I'll let him do that on the podcast now. As always, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at HSVenture, on Instagram at HS.Ventures, and on LinkedIn at HS. You can find me, James Somaru, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram at J underscore Soms. So enjoy the podcast, guys, and do get in touch. So, yes, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this afternoon, sir? Well, thank you very much, James. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you once again. Awesome. So, whereabouts are you speaking to us from, Yesh? Uh, I'm currently working from WeWork Monument in London. Very nice. Very nice. Cool. So, um, obviously, you and I know each other quite well. You're one of our portfolio companies. So, I know all about your background. It's very cool, very interesting. But for the benefit of our listeners, Yesh, why don't you tell us your story? Sure. So I come from a healthcare background primarily, but uh, I have always loved surgery, crazy about surgery. Um, this, this was like right from my childhood days when my uncle, um, he used to go to the medical school and, uh, and there were stories when I used to ask him you know, how he performed these operations and stuff. Um, I, I love it so much that I used to attend like hundreds of hours of operating room time, uh, in sessions in the medical school. Um, I did my undergraduate in dentistry actually, um, and then went on to, you know, uh, into medical visualization, primarily because I am an artist by, uh, I mean, like by nature, I, I love art um, and I, I really love science as well. So uh, I was trying to combine healthcare with uh, technology and art. And that's how um, after my undergraduate years in uh, dentistry, uh, I've, I've, uh, I went into medical visualization at the University of Glasgow. So Essentially, medical visualization is a field. Uh, it comes under health technology, um, where you could you know, combine art, 3D visualization, um, technologies like virtual reality, augmented reality, computer vision uh, in, for healthcare purposes. So as a part of that, um, 
you know, I've built applications for patient safety, uh, patient education, surgical education during my master's. And then I did my PhD as well in you know, virtual reality for surgery. Uh, and I've spent, I've spent um, thousands of hours in operating room over the last seven years, uh, uh, essentially uh, observing how surgeons learn and how could, you know, how could learning be uh, improved for surgical training purposes. Uh, and through the journey, I've learned that, uh, you know, you could only train surgeons to a point, but after that, you got to improve their performance and for, for, for which you need, um, you need to intervene in their real world performance and help them at that point in time. Um, and that's the, uh, and that all started with, you know, uh, with an incident that happened in one of these hospitals. I couldn't name them for uh, confidential reasons, but, um, you know, I was, um, it, it was in Glasgow. So um, the, the hospital was based in Glasgow. It was an early morning session uh, for a maxillofacial surgical procedure. Halfway into the operation, uh, the surgeon stops. He's scared. I could literally feel the heat from his body coming off. This happened because the prosthesis in his hand is not of the patient, but it is of the patient in the next room. Things like this happen every single day in the hospitals. And I was like, if this happens in a country like UK, what's the situation elsewhere? Um, and that uh, inspired me to start Scalpel two years back. I moved to London after my PhD, actually the very next day after my PhD, uh, joined this uh, program called Deep Science Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence. Um, and started working on scalpel. Um, the inspiration essentially came um, to prevent medical errors that happened during surgery. Wow, I mean, it's it's really cool, isn't it, that you that you've got this what seems like quite unique interest in loving science and loving art. I imagine there's probably a few people listening that that that's the case, and maybe maybe it's just me that are thinking that that isn't very common at all i don't know but it doesn't feel very common it doesn't feel that you can marry those two things together very often in people i mean when you were i guess growing up and and learning about science and art and the both of them i mean did you ever was that ever an issue for you did you did you feel able to combine those two things i mean it must have been exciting to realize there was this medical visualization which clearly encapsulates both right yeah actually uh I always used to love drawing uh, in science as well. I love drawing. So I used to, even within science, I used to love drawing stuff like, you know, uh, anatomy uh, or uh, anything to do with histology or pathology. The, the, I, I, I used to love drawing within these science subjects. And I think I also used to feel that uh, the way science is explained in schools and even in, you know, at the level of medical schools is so terrible that it's so boring and sometimes facts are presented in so um, uh, in long descriptions that could have you know in a better way explained through an image or visualization uh, so that i used to do this often in my notes actually i used to keep doodling when you know in, in the classroom but the, the doodles were used to be mostly on uh, scientific illustrations or medical illustrations of sort uh, and quite funnily what happened was um, when i um, um, when I was in my undergraduate years, I got an opportunity to become a uh, uh, an illustrator graphic, uh, in with one of these magazines, and and that kind of pushed me to learn graphic technologies like you know, using technologies like Photoshop, uh, Corel Draw, uh, uh, Adobe InDesign, and um, other you know applications that help you to visualize stuff. And then I learned 3D modeling out of just sort of interest like Autodesk, uh, Maya, 3ds Max. 
And I used to, uh, and the very first model that I made with that is a heart model. I, I love uh, you know, anatomy. So I was like, well, you know, I just want to make uh, a lifelike uh, 3D visualization of heart. Um, and, and that kind of, you know, um, got connected when I, when I first saw the advertisement of uh, medical visualization. There's this really funny story um, that I, I, I bumped up on Facebook, actually. Um, it's an advertisement for, by Dove. Uh, there's this guy called Gil Zamora. He's a medical illustrator. Uh, he keeps drawing images of women. Uh, uh, and then he asks um, them, you know, how, what do you think about yourself? When they explain what they think of themselves, people, um, you know, they have a really low profile of themselves. But this guy, um, you know, when he draws those images, they feel that these images are much more beautiful than who they think they are. So I was like, when in the in the in the in the advertisement, they showed his name as Gil Zamora, medical artist. I was like, medical artist? Is there some stuff like that? And then you know, uh, long story short, I moved to the UK to to explore medical visualization. And then found that, well, actually, uh, with medical visualization, you can change surgery, you could improve surgery, and then marrying all the three, which is surgery, healthcare, and art, I'm here where I am right now. I love that. I love how it's so cool how your interest in art then obviously turned, you expressed it through medical visualization, which then kind of organically led you towards tech, because then obviously to visualize things properly, you've then got, you know, model them in 3D using computers. And then that obviously led you to do various things in you know, computer vision and VR and AR and stuff. So tell me about Absolutely. your PhD, because your PhD sounds really cool. And I'm, I've, I'm just really interested in, in what it was like. I'm interested because it's a PhD in VR and AR in medicine, isn't it? That and, is right. Yeah. So the first thing that I did was a master's in medical visualization at University of Glasgow. Uh, one of the modules in, uh, in, in the master's program is to, is to learn 3D modeling and game development and app development. You learn um, programs like Unity 3D, which is a game, game development software. You also learn how to model 3D structures uh, of, of anatomy uh, using 3ds Max uh, and Maya. And then there is another program called uh, Amira, which is essentially you, you pick up CT scan data, MRI data of the patients and convert them into 3D visualizations. So if you look at an X-ray, for example, a radiographic image, it's a 2D visualization of a 3D object. So in your head, you're trying to reconstruct that into 3D. Uh, while we are, while that is a good, uh, you know, that, that is good to an extent. What what what's really useful is to visualize stuff in 3D the way it actually is, uh, and that is where 3D visualization plays a huge role. However. The 3D visuals that you create on, you know, on a computer are seen on 2D screens once again, which is, you know, on a television or an iPad or a, uh, or a tablet for that matter. Uh, that still is a, uh, is a limitation because, you know, you, you miss the depth in the process. Uh, and that is where uh, technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality come in place. So back in 2013, when I was finishing off my master's, uh, my supervisor came over to me one day and she was like, you know what, you are, you're doing a really good job at what you're doing here with medical visualization. I think you should apply for a, uh, a PhD uh, application, you know, on using a similar technology for surgical training because I was really passionate on medical improving medical education back then. So I was like, I looked at what the cutting edge technology was back then and uh, augmented reality was, um, was the case. So I've, I've applied uh, for a PhD uh, in implementing augmented reality for 
surgical training processes. Um, and the first thing um, that I that I did was actually building VR applications for oral and maxillofacial surgery. It's one of the most complicated operations in head and neck, um, essentially because it has a lot of blood vessels in your face and you got to, you know, when you move bones there, it's really complicated. You need to understand the anatomy uh, with such a great depth that if you, if you look at an image or if you look at a video, you wouldn't get that well. You need to see the depth and that is where VR plays a huge role. So what we did in, in the PhD essentially is we, um, on one hand, I got, uh, I got to develop the technology, uh, but I, I didn't know how to actually record stuff for the virtual reality. I had less information about how to actually build VR applications. So uh, I, uh, on a, uh, it's a serendipitous actually, but I actually uh, found this guy on LinkedIn, Edward Miller. Um, Edward Miller back then is the co-founder of Medical Realities, that with Professor Shafiyama in London. Yeah. Um, I met Edward Miller, um, you know, on LinkedIn, send him a message saying, you know what, um, I'm doing a PhD in this. Uh, I want to understand how you build VR applications in, in surgery. Then he was, he was like really intrigued by my project. And he was like, you know what, you guys can work together on this. And he, he taught me how to, you know, uh, record 360 degree videos. Uh, and with his support, uh, we also recorded uh, 3D stereoscopic videos of surgery. And towards the end of my project, in two and a half years, actually, uh, we built an application which combined 360-degree video, stereoscopic 3D video of surgery, uh, and 3D visualization of patient's data. So basically, you could actually visualize the operation, but on the same hand, practice it uh, on a virtual reality simulation. Uh, what we didn't have is a haptic simulation, of course. We were not entering into haptic elements there. Uh, for the sake of our audience, haptic is a you know force feedback. Um, so without force feedback, we were uh, we were training um, surgical trainees on three uh, D visualization of uh, surgery. Uh, the, pro the the primal, uh, like you know, the primary question, the research question was um, forty percent of the surgical trainees or the residents are not confident before performing a major operation. And uh, can you imagine going through an operation? And you know, and you, you know, your surgeon is not confident about it. How do you feel about it? So my my research question was: Technologies like VR and augmented reality, do they are they is there is it just a hype, or do they actually help you improve your confidence and performance in the operating theaters? Uh, at the end of the PhD, we performed a randomized control trial with this um, VR technology, um, and we compared it with the current state of the art training. We did this in the UK over in, in about seven NHS plus and in India in about 10 medical schools. Uh, and we found a significant improvement in self-confidence of surgical trainings when they use VR as a training model um, compared to their current methods. And that was really uh, interesting. And that you know, led to uh, further research in the university where I worked, the University of Glasgow and University of Huddersfield. So then you use this and you go and become a dentist and you work as a dentist and medical illustrator and all those different things. And, and then you co-founded something called Open Stimulation. So tell me about that. Yeah. So um, Edward Miller became a close friend of mine through this project of my, during my PhD. And um, we were at a conference together and we were, we were looking at how laparoscopic surgery training is happening in the current day and age. Um, we have these systems, like really complicated, very expensive surgical simulation systems like provided by 3D systems and companies uh, like Thimbionics. Um, and the, 
the, the simulators are so expensive, sometimes they reach up to 200,000 pounds. Um, and a medical school will have one or two of them, and these students are supposed to go get access to it and learn um, to perform these uh, really complicated laparoscopic surgery procedures. One of the first things in laparoscopic surgery is to train your hand uh, and eye to coordinate with each other. We call it hand-eye coordination. Um, and we were like, wait, actually, this could be done in a very simple format by you know, using computer vision and mobile applications. So this, this essentially was like a um, brainchild of Edward and myself in a, at a conference, a medical conference called AMEA, Association of Medical Education, um, AMEE. Uh, and we were like, let's actually you know, build a prototype around this and see if this actually works. We built a prototype showed it to some laparoscopic surgeons uh, and they loved it and they're like wow this is amazing so we we ended up um, you know starting open simulation with um, with a vision to bring surgical training and simulation based training to everyone irrespective of their financial background uh, or their location uh, we started off open simulation in 2015 uh, we went through uh, emerge education accelerator during that period uh, we've built our first application uh, that trains basic laparoscopic surgery skills. Uh, we got many packs on the back, however. Um, it's amazing technology, provides low cost, uh, you know, surgical training. Uh, and also it's a, um, you know, medical students could practice really complicated skills just off their kitchen table. Uh, and, and we were selected as one of the innovators at the World Innovation Summit for Health in 2016 in uh, Doha. Uh, and that was amazing. Um, not just for these purposes, but people like uh, David Knott, David Knott's foundation, uh, as well as um, there were humanitarian uh, uh, surgeons who perform in humanitarian crisis in Syria. They reached out to us saying, could you provide these uh, applications for free uh, in, in areas where they have like really low resources? Um, and we realized that you know, a company like Open Simulation is essentially a social enterprise more of a social enterprise than a business. Um, and that's how, I think that's how it transformed. That's really cool. It's a nice realization as well, isn't it? That I imagine that made you feel much more comfortable once you'd realized that and then decided, you know what, this is the direction we want to move it. This is the impact it's making. Okay, fine. It, it can't really function as a business. It's not worth our time in that respect, but Hey, you know, it's making impact. So let's put it in, you know, the social enterprise box and, and let's keep doing some cool stuff with it. Absolutely. That's the right. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. And because you weren't busy enough, you then went and founded Scalpel. Tell me all about it. I, I'm, I'm really interested about how you came up with the idea, first of all, because I can see that there's a, there's a, there's a genuine pro progression here, isn't there? Because you've, you've obviously done the medicine or the medical side and dentistry, the artistic side, you put them together to visualize and you've gone through the tech element to then build these 3d models. And you've then undergone this sort of calling towards education. So you're improving the way sur surgeons are training. So was it then relatively organic that you then just think, okay, let's just now go one stage bigger and, and let's come up with a, with, with this new idea. No, it's actually, um, so I've, 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 we've realized that open simulation can't be a huge business in 2016. I was in my final year of the PhD. So that was a time when I kind of focused essentially on my PhD work. And I, as I traveled to India, uh, what I realized is what technologies like virtual reality, the surgical training, that, you know, if, if I could give you an analogy, it's like uh, icing on the cake in countries like UK, where clinicians where all the surgical residents have enough opportunities to observe a procedure clearly. Whereas in countries like India, 
it is the cake itself mm. because because we hardly get to see operations like in a room of 20 to 30 people uh, and you know piling up on each other trying to observe what's actually happening in the operating table mm. so the scalability genuinely solves a much bigger problem in in, in india more so than the western world absolutely and 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 then i was like and and that is the reason i believe that in you know in a span of five weeks during my PhD, about 110 surgeons tested this technology that I've built. Wow. That, wouldn't have, <laughs> that wouldn't have happened in the UK like in six months. So, um, so I was like, whoa. So there is this, the same thing that you build in a, in a different market has huge impact on it, you know, on a totally different uh, level in, a, you know, in another country. So I've, I've seen that firsthand uh, before as well as a, during my training, but this was uh, a revelation of a different kind. When I came back, um, I knew that I, I can't be an academic and publish research papers. I'm not that guy. I need, I need to publish stuff or actually I need to build stuff that people use. So, um, I'm, and I was like, okay, I'm not going into uh, academia. So I would definitely going to like, build my own company. But I thought it has to do with learning. I, I thought I always thought it has to do with training um, until I read the book called Complications by Professor Tilda Wande. Mm. Um, and he's also the author of a book called Checklist Manifesto, which you know, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, which I read much later than that. But I first read Complications, and in that book he mentions, you know, you can you can train somebody only to an extent, but then you expect them to perform based on the training from there to the you know, I mean, into the future. And that was like a light bulb moment for me, which is moving away from training to real world performance and how you can kind of connect these two together. So when I, when I joined Deep Science Ventures, I came up with the idea that, you know what, I have this fantastic PhD project and I want to commercialize it. Um, and during my market research, with we, we had a chat with, um, we, we actually uh, spoke to 37 surgical teams in the UK, EU, uh, US and India, uh, literally asking about, you know, surgical errors, what, is, what are the complications that they often face? What are their frustrations for frontline clinicians? Um, how, how would hospital payments work? When things go wrong, who pays? Uh, how would patients suffer? And also we spoke to surgeons who made mistakes in their past. Um, so how is their, you know, what was their feeling and stuff? And we realized that there is a huge opportunity here to actually improve patient care, you know, to give you an idea around that. 7 million people suffer from surgical errors every single year. Um, and uh, there is a statistic that shows that medical errors are the third leading cause of death. The majority of them happen during surgery now. Sad part of it is all of these, or most of them, are preventable if, uh, if you have done all the safety steps appropriately. And this is, this is really concerning because if you could prevent an error, why not? Yeah. So that is how um, we, we were inspired to start Scalpel as a surgical safety company primarily. Uh, whereas the technology or the solution only came through working with frontline clinicians. We worked with customers to build the thing rather than the other way around. So there's a few bits I want to pull out there and I definitely want to talk to you about, you know, your very deep understanding of the problem. But first of all, just explain what scalpel is, you know, very briefly, you know, and succinctly, you know, what problem it is or problems uh, there are that you're solving and just sort of run us through the user journey of a clinician or, you know, a, a team of clinicians in the operating room using your technology. Sure. So at Scalpel right now, we build software that makes surgery safer and more efficient. The software essentially runs on uh, Android, iOS, and 
Microsoft HoloLens platforms. It's augmented reality platform. Um, essentially work by, so the users are frontline clinicians. So imagine you're a surgeon, you have an operation this morning, you use the software on your application or on your tablet or your phone. Uh, you scan the patient's ID. System integrates with the healthcare records. It confirms uh, and guides you through the safety checks that you have to perform during the operation. Uh, and it also predicts potential risks in the, uh, in the surgery that you're going to perform. Uh, inside the theater, uh, the system acts like an AI assistant of sorts. Um, so we, uh, we have like you know, running nurses, we have scrub nurses, already in the room um, and we what we the underlying problem that we currently have is they're all performing different tasks uh, at the same time so there's a really high distribution of uh, cognitive uh, uh, load there is a really high cognitive load on these people uh, with a huge pressure to improve theater efficiency what OABOT or Stanford's product does is it helps clinicians by retrieving and recording clinical information inside the theater. Um, so clinicians like surgeons could talk through the system using a voice interface and get a response back by the system at any time. Uh, that is to do with anything to do with safety checks and surgery. Uh, and towards the end of the operation, they get a timestamp report of um, you know, what happened, when and where. Um, and that information could then, um, be, then inform them about the safety information that they have done, uh, that they have checked, or if can also uh, help in transfer of handover information for that matter when the patient is moved to an ICU. So this is like a, essentially you could consider it as an AI assistant in the operating theater. So when you say that it retrieves and records clinical information, do you want to just give us like a, a couple of examples of the types of things that this will automatically record and why that is so useful? So one of the problems in uh, in surgery right now is operating theaters are places where people, patients, um, so people, procedures, and uh, protocols come together. Uh, and this is like a complex system. So in an engineering term, it's a complex system. Uh, the problem is information is stored in different formats and in different places. Uh, and people who are in different um, hierarchy levels are operating with that information. Uh, on a patient who is whom, whom they have just seen that morning, like, uh, most of the times. Uh, and there is a huge gap for human error in that case. So for example, just giving you an idea around, you know, allergy to latex gloves, for example. Uh, if the patient has latex gloves allergy, then they're supposed to write that on, a, on the patient's, you know, medical record. And somebody is supposed to read it out loud before the patient goes through an operation. So this patient has latex allergy, let us not use latex gloves. Imagine, somebody doesn't check that on the patient's file. Rest of the team wouldn't know because they haven't, they, they're believing this, that somebody who is, whoever is leaving the checks uh, or is supposed to do that. And mismanagement of this or miscommunication of this information leads to uh, frontline clinicians using latex wells and thereby allergy and complications. What the system does in this case um, is it integrates with the healthcare records. It asks some specific questions to these frontline clinicians before they operate. So in this case, uh, the system itself is, a, uh, is like a champion on the safety checks. Um, on one hand, as I was mentioning, it, you know, for example, let's take the same example of latex gloves. The system itself um, understands based on looking at the healthcare records that this patient has latex gloves allergy, and it highlights that information when you basically scan the patient's workflow. 
uh, it highlights the same information when you are about to get into the operating theater and start performing a procedure. And it confirms the same thing when you are leaving the operating theater. So why are these safety checks needed? Um, we, we need um, a couple of things when you, when you think of safety. Uh, safety is a priority, but it's often um, ignored in, in complex systems, primarily because people assume safety is, um, is, a, is, a, uh, is an end goal towards something. But safety is actually not an end goal. It's a consequence of doing the right things right. Uh, no, no surgeon in the world wants to, you know, goes to an operating room assuming that he would make a mistake. He's, he, he never wants, he wants to save the patient and he would never, even in his dreams, want to make a mistake. But why do these things go wrong? Because uh, human error comes into place. So what we do with Stalco is we don't prevent errors. We help them do the right things right. So errors are prevented as a consequence of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And what I what I like about this, and I like this ever since the first time I met you, is that I can remember back to when I was a doctor and when I was an anaesthetist, you know, and I was doing quality improvement projects and doing these little things around the hospital. And I think I've mentioned this on this podcast a few times now that whenever I saw other people do these projects, it would always be an extra checklist or an extra bit of paperwork or an extra form to fill in that then enabled, okay, fine. It did up the safety of something, but the problem is something like that takes eyes off patients and puts eyes on paperwork for even longer. And so there's even more admin, there's even more frustration. And then arguably, you know, with, with frustrated clinics that are uh, clinicians that are burning out, they're having to do more admin work. It's arguably detrimental in fact, and not actually safer at all. And so, what I liked about your solution is, is how automatic it is. And mm-hmm. I think I liked your approach to solving the problem. And you mentioned it briefly when you first started talking about Scalpel, all that work that you've done to really understand the customer. And I think it might be worth you just explaining a little bit now about how you actually went about deciding which problems to solve and how you did that with the hospitals and how you kind of built it with them in mind and sort of co-developed it. Yeah. So the the first thing, as I mentioned, that we did was we we went to you know organizations that that look at uh, incidents that happen in hospitals, like NATSSIP in the UK that provides standards for safety, uh, or the local SSIPs, um, uh, which are um, local NHS organizations that provide safety standards for each cost, uh, and also at a bigger on the top level NHS improvement. Uh, it's a it's a organization that manages um, the safety standards at different levels in different trusts. So we spoke to uh, people, including frontline clinicians and um, managers of investigation committees of, within these uh, organizations to understand what do, what did they learn when you know when an incident happens in the in the operating theaters. What's interesting here is it, on a priority level, uh, it is the never events that that. Uh, you know, attract media attention and every, you know, every other uh, house's attention, which is, you know, in never even, for example, is an, an event that shouldn't have happened in the first place uh, if all the safety steps are done appropriately. So this is, for example, operating on the wrong patient or leaving instruments in a patient's body or leaving a swab in a patient's body. Incidents like this gain maximum attention. But if you actually look at it from a numbers point of view, they, um, there are fewer never events to um, when you compare to actual number of incidents that happen in the theater. So 
for every one ever event, there are hundreds of minor incidents that go wrong in every operation. Uh, and these, 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 these are termed as uh, minor incidents or errors in surgery. And in the UK, we had over 40,000 within the last two years, uh, essentially in medical uh, errors, which, which didn't go to an every event, but you know, they, they were uh, errors. Now, this is where we learned that on one hand, if you, you can try, you can try to build a technology that kind of uh, plugs the never event problem, which is what we learned is the biggest problem in the UK or in uh, across the healthcare uh, providers. But never events are a rare occurrence. You know, you, it's like trying to uh, stop, trying to find a black swan. Okay, black swan is a rare occurrence. And if you're trying to find a rare event uh, and fix it, build a solution around it, that's not going to work. Um, but if you were to prevent an every event, what is the first thing to do is get everybody doing the right things in the right way, which is to follow the protocols, make sure that you're operating on the right patient and have the basic checks done appropriately, which the frontline clinicians hate to do sometimes uh, because they are pushed um, to, to a corner with in trying to uh, improve their efficiencies. On the other hand, these are redundant checks done multiple times in, in the hospital, right? So even the patient is frustrated, frontline clinicians are frustrated, like, are we talking about the right patient? Do we have the right equipment? Do we have these things? Now, however, clinicians really love to, to, uh, to discuss and to understand uh, the changes within each surgery. So surgeons really like to talk about surgical complications that could occur in a procedure. Nurses like to talk about specific instruments that are needed um, and you know, consenting approach. So there are, there are things that clinicians love and they hate. What we did um, essentially, and you mentioned admin work, and I think that's something that we also learned that clinicians hated, um, uh, given half the time they are spending on you know, uh, doing admin work when they could actually spend the time on paper uh, on the patient. So we were like, eliminate the things that clinicians hate, bring, add more information to things that uh, people love. One thing that I have to mention here is, you know, you, you rightly mentioned that adding a new checklist, adding a new tool is only going to add to the work uh, you know, that they are already doing. That is essentially what we intended to eliminate in the first place. Um, the problem with adding new checklists is it is something that worked in airline industry. They literally picked it up and dropped it in the healthcare without understanding the human factors that, that are involved in healthcare. With respect to airlines, you're dealing with a machine that looks exactly the same in different companies of airlines that, that build an aeroplane. Whereas every patient is different, you actually have to compare it like a luggage, not a aeroplane. And that is the problem where you bring a solution from a totally different industry, put this up here. It, may, it is effective only, so it, it, the problem is not with the checklist or with the other solution. It is how you implement it. Here we are time bound. We are we are really really short on timelines, um, and we we have huge targets to hit. We have over four million people waiting for an operation, and we have cancellations, overruns. So how do you expect clinicians to actually you know spend uh, time to actually go through each check? And this is this leads to what call, what is what we call as a tick box exercise. People literally ticking boxes off without actually checking what they're doing, uh, and um, you know, things go wrong. It sounds to me like you've got a real respect for the kind of the intricacies of, of a clinician's actual workload and what their actual job is. And the reason, one of the reasons I say that is because you've said something there about the airline industry that when I was a 
an anesthetist being an anesthetist we had human factors lectures and talks and seminars and this comparison came up all the time of oh this is what they do in the airline industry and this is how checklists work in the airline industry and airline industry airline and it it, <laughs> it just got on my nerves at the time because yeah. as you've rightly pointed out there are so many differences to talk about and i can appreciate the sentiment that yes okay you're trying to bring over this this intervention in checklist that has made a significant difference but we're all sensible people in the room we are you know as as medical doctors you know we've we've seen enough and done enough to know that it's not as simple as just bringing something over so it was far more about having a, a sensible conversation around it and and for me it was more about how do we use this information to develop something that's even more useful than what they do in the airline industry potentially but yeah that that comparison did wear thin on me i'm not going to lie so to hear you actually say that is uh it's also quite refreshing because you've got the sort of outside opinion and yeah it, that respect for, for what a clinician actually does seems to come through in what you say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we, we need to build a tool for the people who, who are going to use, not literally pick it up from somewhere and drop it here. And there's a few hospitals that are using it now, isn't there? Yeah. So we, uh, so now it's a mandatory rule within the UK at least to, uh, uh, to use a WHO surgical safety checklist. Uh, however, when you know studies have shown that there is only 60 to 65 percent of it uh, actually is complied well, uh, and if, however, if you actually look at you know a hospital that where things could go wrong, we spoke to some investigation uh, teams, uh, and they mentioned that they go to the hospital where an incident occurred. They ask them to provide with the first thing they ask is the checklist. If an audit is done, have have you actually done a checklist in this operation? They show you the checklist, and all the boxes are ticked appropriately. And then you know nothing when white thing went wrong in a hospital in an operating room, and that is the problem. That is, you know, if 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 an incident happened this morning in London, and if a similar incident is about to happen tomorrow morning in Glasgow, there is no way to transfer that knowledge from London to Glasgow overnight to prevent that incident in Glasgow, because in the first place we don't understand why things go right, why things go wrong, and even if you do, we the way we currently have is so inefficient that you publish a paper or a, or a report or something. And by the time you get to learn about, you know, an incident that happened elsewhere in the UK or in the world, uh, we have over 10 to 15 incidents in our hospital. So we need a, we need a transformation here, a radical transformation in how safety is you know, taken care of in the hospitals, but also how learning happens across healthcare providers. So, we don't have to repeat the same mistakes that you know somebody else does. So you know that is what we envision Scaffold to do. So think of it as a as a operating system like Tesla's, right? So if a if a if a driver, manual driver, performs a mistake and you know he, he gets a, gets into an accident, th there is a high chance that somebody else go, can get into an accident in the same way. But a, a an automated system that is learning from its mistake could uh, you know all of the cars that are using the same system get to the next stage so they prevent that error from happening in the future. That is what we envision Scalpel system to work like. We want a safety culture that learns from other hospitals and healthcare providers and performs better. Not a, a standard paper checklist that is coming from a different industry, hoping people are going to use it in the right way, um, but actually helping them do the right things in the right way. Uh, the tech that we are building for the problem is experienced in exactly the same way across all the hospitals in the globe, irrespective of its geography. 
So take a hospital in India or take a hospital in uh, United States. They still both have uh, a problem of medical errors that go through in, in the operating rooms. And what we are building with Scalpel is highly scalable for that matter because we are building a solution that for a problem that is experienced in the same format across the globe. For which reason we've got tremendous traction in the US last month when we were there, uh, essentially from ambulatory surgical centers as well as some healthcare providers. Uh, I would I would reveal more details in, in the name of future regarding that. Very cool. It must be quite nice that it is so transferable, especially across countries. Very, yeah, it must be very cool to then go to, you know, as you say, a hospital in the US and, and you start to see improvements and the system gets learning that you can then apply to, as you say, somewhere in India. That must be, yeah, it must be quite rewarding. That is, that is, that, that is the exciting part of this, um, of this journey, that uh, if you focus on surgical speciality by surgical speciality, uh, that is where uh, there, is the, there is a transferability. However, we need to understand that there is a variance within different surgeons performing the same procedure, but the system uh, accounts for that variance and uh, you have options to uh, accommodate and customize it for your own team if that is what you want. And, you know, even the WHO guidelines when you, when you build a safety system or it has to be customizable. So just to give you an idea, uh, one of the questions in the WHO checklist is, is the pulse oximeter working, right? Uh, if that question, which seems very relevant in you know, a hospital like UCL in London, seems irrelevant in a uh, setting in Nigeria, because what exactly is a pulse oximeter? They don't have a pulse oximeter. Wow. And what are you like? What do they take in a in a box like? Is pulse oximeter working? So you have to build a system that is you know that could be customized to the end user definitely, uh, but at the same time you have to also build a standard that helps us towards the future of surgery. So, uh, yes, we don't have pulse oximeter, but do you have an option like that? Is pulse oximeter available or not? Um, so that is what we provide right now, a customizable solution, which is user-specific and could be you know, uh, on the same hand, which, um, which is highly scalable across the surgical specialties. And what's your business model then? Because you're selling what seems to be a service rather than, you know, just a bit of tech or, you know, a bit of, bits of tech put together and i appreciate yes there are lots of bits of tech involved obviously with you know computer vision and natural language processing and the, you know the hardware and the ipads whatever behind it but it seems to me that you're selling a service as a whole so how are you working that into a business model because again internationally across different countries there's obviously different ways to get this reimbursed that is right so the the, the only uh, variation within uh, geographies is in the business model because of the different reimbursement approaches whereas the uh, from the tech side of things the way uh, you know in the uk the way the business model works is a straight off SaaS model uh, we, we provide it to the healthcare providers at an initial installation cost of the software and integration with their healthcare records we built this on fir guidelines thereby uh, that means you could straight away integrate what, what that actually means is that it's a standard that helps you to integrate with the most common electronic healthcare record systems like Epic, Cerna, uh, uh, and you know, healthcare record systems like PPM Plus, which is a very customized system for leads. Um, it's it's easy to uh, cross, you know, integrate with these healthcare records if you start building it on the uh, standards like FTHIR. Uh, that's one thing that we have done right. The other bit is with respect to uh, the software itself. It is paid on subscription for operating room per month, um, and we provide it to the uh, 
to operating theaters. Uh, uh, so healthcare providers are the primary target market for us. Uh, quite interestingly, uh, what we are building for healthcare providers is, uh, is also quite relevant to medical device companies. Um, and that is exciting for us as well as for these companies because you know, one example is, the, uh, is regarding the instruments that, uh, that are used within an operation and that are not used. Uh, and you know, optimization of instrument trace is the next big thing happening within uh, medical device industry. Um, and device companies are also moving towards digital technologies. So this is a great intersection with you know company like Scalpel and company like J Labs or uh, Medtronic for that matter to to cross collaborate and to collaborate and work together in in building a novel solution. So we've got two business models: one for healthcare providers, one for medical device companies. Um, Essentially, the the the, the payment model is a SaaS model. Yeah, that is really cool. And what I like is it's very similar actually to Perfect Water. I think you know as well. Jonathan's been on this podcast before, and they built a similar kind of platform around checklist actually, but for um, inspections and. What they eventually found was that with everybody coming onto the platform, different departments within the same hospital, different hospitals in the country, different hospitals from different countries worldwide, is that when you're building these different checklists, other people are starting to see what other people are doing. And what it's, what tended to happen was that it drove up standards, even sort of globally, because everybody can start to compare. It's similar to what you said, you know, with, with the pulse oximeter in Nigeria, while well, they don't have one, it seems that they might, you know, then think, oh, well, this is the next most important thing, or, you know, it might put pressure and, and help them lobby to get that sort of stuff out nationally and things like that. So it seems to be that in the future, I, I imagine that you, that you envisage some sort of community of practice around what you're doing that drives up global standards because I can, I can feel in this conversation even now, you know, we've spoken many times before, but I've not heard your passion for safety and your passion for driving up the standard of surgery in quite such detail as, as I have in, in, on this podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, and I imagine again, that that must, that, is, is that what you're aiming for? Is, Absolutely. is, is, is that going to reward you? Is that, is that the Holy grail? Absolutely. So it's the gold, gold standard for surgical safety is what, what we are after. That's really cool, man. So, okay. So one last question for me then would be, what do you see the future as? And I know that obviously the scalpel platform will sit in the middle, but you've obviously got a lot of experience, even through your artistic stuff about looking towards the future and, and seeing lots of different things. How, how, what do you see the future of the operating room to be? So surgery is moving digital, and in the future, in the next 15 to 20 years, you would see most of the hospitals that currently are using paper-based and mixed economies like paper and digital-based data would move towards primarily digital data. Uh, and that is the time where, you know, you could actually learn from data and perform analytics on top of it to understand, you know, how you could improve safety or efficiency or uh, uh, um, or also even improve the uh, patient flow in a hospital. That is where even you know, companies like Salty play a huge role. So for example, you know, there are multiple companies in the industry today, like Verb Surgical, which is a combination of Johnson & Johnson and Google. Um, there is digital surgery in London, which was previously called touch surgery. Um, there are companies uh, like Intuitive Surgicals, um, Cambridge um, uh, Robotics. So there are there are multiple companies moving towards robotic surgery, autonomous robotic surgery, trying to standardize the surgical procedures. That's a fantastic goal to go after. Um, essentially, when you know there is a dearth of um, surgeons across the globe, and you know 
we need uh, you know five billion people suffering from you know lack of unsafe uh, like uh, suffering from unsafe surgery. Um, this is a this is a massive need, massive global need, and technologies like this are a are a great solution for that. But there is an underlying problem. The problem is, imagine you build you have a Ferrari or you have a uh, Tesla, the, the best car you could imagine, and you have a very bad road. The road isn't set right to run these cars. And that is the kind of platform that we are building with Scalpel. So we are building a platform that helps hospitals, medical device companies, and robotic surgery companies in the future to improve surgical safety and to bring a theater efficiency to a totally different level. So think of it as a smart operating room. But in the future, it's going to be a data-enabled surgical safety. So data-enabled operating rooms are, are the future. And I think Scalpel is going to play a huge role in that, uh, in that direction. Uh, and there are multiple companies in this, uh, at, at this time who are, uh, you know, who are after this. But you know, the sea is so big for every one of us to, you know, and we need more companies coming into the space anyway. Amazing. And you guys are currently looking for investors to come along on the journey, aren't you? So just quickly tell us about that. That is right. So we, um, we are raising our seed round of investment. We've got some angel investors on board, but we are, lo- we are also looking for lead investors, essentially um, investors who, who understand the health tech space, who are passionate uh, in, you know, in the use of technologies like AI in healthcare. Um, and also, we are we are keen to you know, speak to people who are even beyond the UK and the US healthcare markets, primarily because you know the technology that we have built is not for the NHS alone or not for one particular hospital. It's for a global surgical challenge. Um, so super excited to speak to um, uh, early stage uh, VCs as well as seed stage investors. Awesome. Yes, this has been a pleasure. So it's gone really quickly, actually, but the I must have I have to kind of sum this up now. So um, the way we end these podcasts is I hand back over to you to just really briefly in a minute or so explain a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Scalpel and close us out with any asks that you've got of our audience. Sure. So. Uh, I come from a healthcare background. My name is Yash. I was trained as a dentist, then moved into medical visualization, built technologies in past for surgical safety, and now building a company called Scalpel. At Scalpel, we build software that improves surgical safety and theater efficiency. It actually runs on iOS and Android and Microsoft PolarLens platforms, helps you to automate protocols in confirming safety, improving theater utilization, and also counting surgical instruments. We are at a significant stage where we've built our technology, tested it in simulated operating rooms, and are now running clinical trials in about six hospitals in the UK. We have significant traction even in the US healthcare market. And the stage of the company is we are uh, raising our seed round of investment. Um, we had previous investors um, who came into pre-seed level, uh, and we have significant traction from angels in the, in the, in the game. We're looking for early stage um, seed stage investors or early stage VCs who are uh, who are interested and passionate about health tech and also in the use of technology like AI in healthcare. I'm Yash. We are building Scalpel, which is going to be the gold standard for surgical safety. Amazing. And how can people get in touch with you, Yash, if they want to find you? Well, it's very easy. You could reach out to me on yash at scalpel.ai. You could learn more about Scalpel at scalpel, S-C-A-L-P-E-L dot A-I. Uh, you could also reach, uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Yeshwan Kudijala is my name. Awesome. It's been a pleasure, Yes. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, James.